So we've been going through these, these resources. We went through boundaries and then we went through the five love languages. And uh, we're not going to go through another resource anymore. So those are the only two we're going to do. We actually had planned on doing quite a few, but uh, as Ron and I discussed this week, uh, Ron started to look into his next resource, which I actually thought would be really good, and I had another one lined up. But as we got talking about it, we realized that a lot of it's going to come down to the stuff that we've already talked about. A lot of psychologizing, a lot of dealing with people's feelings, and a lot of selfish stuff, really, um, just looking at stuff. So the things that we talked about with boundaries and five love languages, that's pretty prevalent above around a lot of those resources that are labeled as Christian, um, but are written by psychologists, that kind of thing. So, um, so if you go back and you listen to those, or if you can recall the things we talked about, those pretty well planned. That was what we were trying to accomplish in that, is that we were talking about, you know, these, are, these specific resources, but these concepts, you know, they get, they're all out there. So, uh, if you can keep that in mind. Now, I, I do want to, what we're going to address this morning, we're going to talk about a biblical perspective of emotions. And um, the reason I chose this, I actually was going a different direction when I first started uh, studying and came across this. And I actually came across several uh, podcasts from ACBC, and I think it was an article or two. Uh, and I will give you all the resources for that if you want to go and listen to those. Really a lot of great stuff. Uh, regarding emotions. Uh, but this does play to what we've been talking about. This is why I wanted to cover it, because so much of what we talked about in Boundaries and Five Love Languages and what's out there in other resources is emotional. It's how do we feel about things and how does that affect and what, do, what kind of expectations do we set up based on our feelings. And so that's what we're going to talk about, a right use of our emotions and a right perspective, godly perspective, biblical perspective on our emotions this morning. So, um, so we all know, you know, we're, we're creating God's image. We, Im- we are image bearers, that we are like God in some ways. He created us to be that way. And it's the, uh, obviously, it's the immaterial parts of us that we are like God in, some of those immaterial parts our inner man aspects uh, in, the, in that we bear His image. Um, and we can see that you know, we have emotions. We, we can know that God has emotions as well. We, we read about God having emotions. We, um, of course, He doesn't experience emotion as we do, which is a mystery to, the, to us, and I'll sort of understand, explain in a minute why we, it's difficult for us to understand that. Because He's unchanging, He's holy, He's perfect, He's not swayed by his emotion as we are. He's not carried away with his emotions like we are. He's never sinful in his emotions as we often are. But we do read in Scripture that you know, we see that the Father loves and delights in the Son. So del- delighting in something would be an emotion. He rejoices over his people. You know, we, we hear you know, Chris is going through this, the judgment against the Israelites, but... We also read that God delighted in His people that He chose. Um, he, God experiences sorrow and he has, has righteous anger. You know, anger is a, we've talked about anger before, anger is an emotion. Of course, if we carry that through, it oftentimes becomes more than emotion, right? But uh, it is emotion. He has righteous anger and hatred toward the wicked. We read that in the Old Testament. Of course, we read that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We can, the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. 
we read of Jesus being righteously angered as he goes into the temple and clears it out. And then as he's dealing with the Pharisees, we read several places that he's angered. And of course, he's righteous in his anger. We see Jesus being sorrowful and grieved. And uh, we see him feeling compassion over the lost. So we, we see that God also experiences these emotions. However, he, he experiences emotions, and we read about that, but nothing ever happens to God. So, I mean, if, and hopefully you're on the same page with me on that, right? Nothing ever happens to God, like things happen to us. Nothing is a surprise to God. He's the ultimate cause and source of all things. He's omniscient. He knows everything from before eternity, you know, well, into eternity past, and He knows everything into eternity future. There's nothing that, that comes about that He wasn't aware of already. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. So there's nothing that, that's going to surprise God. So nothing actually happens to Him that comes upon me. He says, oh, what am I going to do about that? Or how am I going to feel about that? Where that's what happens to us all the time. So it's, it's a little difficult for us to comprehend you know, when our emotions are driven by the things that happen in our life or the people that happen, to, <laughs> happen in our life, you know, things that come across, come to us, that's what we oftentimes have our emotions about. But God doesn't have that experience. He doesn't feel emotions because of these things happening, and that is something that we can't comprehend. Uh, but we do know um, that God does feel. We just don't understand how does God feel anything about what He brings about Himself. So he is causing all things, but yet he has feelings about those things. So I don't know if you guys are tracking with me here, but we, he causes it to happen. They're not happening, so, but he still has emotion about it. And we, we have difficulty related, related to that because most of our emotions are what come out of what is happening to us. Now, that's God. He, he emotes perfectly. Uh, we, on the other hand, of course, we most often don't have feelings about what we directly or willfully bring about at all. God has feelings about the things that He causes, that He brings about. But we, on the other hand, most often have our feelings regarding circumstances and the relationships that we have, that we, most of all, that we have limited or no control over. So those things that come at us that we can't control or we don't bring into our life intentionally, oftentimes those are the things that we end up having strong emotions about. But emotions don't just happen to us either. So we have these emotions, but we don't, they don't just happen. Um, our emotions are not determined by, uh, they're not determined by, so when I say they don't just happen, I mean they're, they're not determined by what happens to us. They're not determined by the circumstances. They're not determined by the difficult people that are in our life, or the difficult things that people do that maybe they're not difficult all the time, but they do something difficult, right? Um, but we need to be thinking about our emotions as we do about sin, because oftentimes our emotions do become sinful. They're not maybe sinful right off the bat, but oftentimes they can become sinful if we allow them to hang around and to build. We can uh, they would become a sinful thing. Now, remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Hopefully, this is one that you guys have memorized. It'd be a good one to have your kids memorize as well. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And of course, we're hearing that the last several Sundays, because that's in what 
Chris is covering the passage that he's covering, so he's reading it each week. Um, but we are accountable for our sin. We cannot blame our sin on some other temptation. There's no temptation that causes us to sin. We choose to sin. Now, uh, we, on the other hand, we do not experience our emotions apart from our sinful nature or our flesh. We have our flesh that influences us in our emotions. We're sometimes carried away with our emotions. So when we're not self-controlled, when we're not keeping track on our emotions, when we're not considering and examining ourselves and examining our emotions, um, we, allow our thinking to be inf- inf- our, we allow our thinking to be influenced by our emotions. Of course, we're going to get into here, you're going to see how our thoughts really drive our emotions, but our emotions also affect the way we think. Now, of course, not all of our emotions are necessarily negative emotions. We also have, uh, uh, we're also commanded to express and experience God-pleasing emotions. So God actually uh, commands us to have right and good emotions. Romans 12, Paul instructs the believers to show mercy cheerfully to abhor what is evil, to have brotherly love for one another. So we know, we know that in, um, we know from uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that, we, that love is an action. We, we know that love is patient, love is kind. We, those, those things that as a list to go off of that we can evaluate whether we're loving or not. We can, we can evaluate how we need to change to love, the things that we are or not, aren't doing that are loving or not loving. But when he says here that to have brotherly love for one another, that's more of a feeling, right? We have a brother, we have a different love for our brother a lot of times than we do for somebody else. Um, so we're going to have that brotherly affection towards one another. To rejoice, we're, we're commanded, uh, same place, rejoice in hope. Uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're commanded to weep. We're commanded to feel sorrow when others are, are feeling, feeling sorrow. We can't be just complacent or apathetic about these things. We need to be concerned with the emotions of others, the things that other people are feeling. In Ephesians 4.32, we're commanded to be tender-hearted toward one another. I, I really like that word tender-hearted, mainly because I probably struggle with it. <laughs> but the idea of being, you know, having, being tender-hearted and, and being... Um, being ready to love, being ready to care, being sympathetic and being mindful of other people and, and how I can feel towards them. In Colossians 3, we're commanded to put on a heart of compassion. So we're commanded to, be, to have loving and, and sweet emotions towards others. Now, we can both experience emotions in the inner man, of course. That's where we oftentimes feel we, we feel our emotions inside, right? And so we, we often feel that we say, we, we say that our feelings got hurt. Right? And we're going to talk about that in, in a little while. But uh, we, get, we have our feelings inside us, but we can also express emotions to others. Of course, hopefully as married couples, you know that you can express emotions to your spouse. Hopefully a lot of times that an emo- that's an emotion of love and affection. Uh, I imagine there's probably some other emotions that get uh, expressed once in a while. Um, but uh, the expression to others is driven, that, that it, when we express our emotions to others, it's already driven by what we already have inside. We, already ex- we experience those emotions inside before the expression comes out to others. 
So when we express emotions, we make it obvious to others how we are experiencing emotions. So when we're expressing things, we're, we're making it obvious to everybody else what we're feeling inside, what our emotion is inside, what, uh, what we have within is coming out. In, in other words, what we do reveals our heart condition. It's uh, our expression uh, of emotions reveals what we value and possibly even what we idolize. So, you know, when our idols get crossed, we start expressing to others that that's a problem, right? It's a sinful way to act. It's a sinful way to have, it's a sinful to have the idols in the first place. But if we get those idols crossed, we are most likely going to respond in a sinful way as well. And that often happens in, in marriages, right? Um, we have expectations. We have things that we, that we set up as things that the way it has to be. And when it's not that way, we get upset about it. And we express that. So emotions are indicators. They're, they're in a, if you were in the counseling class we had here, I went through this example in there. But the emotions are the, the warning lights on the dashboard, right? So we experience these emotions, and oftentimes we're expressing these emotions. But these are emotions are warning lights on the dashboard. Um, and there's a lot of biblical counseling authors that use this analogy. So when the oil pressure light comes on on your car, you're driving down the road and the oil pressure light comes on, uh, which happened to Yvonne one time actually, and, um, and, and it wasn't my fault. Um, <laughs> it wasn't her fault either. Um, but when the oil pressure light comes on, you don't just keep driving and hope it goes off. You, you don't, uh, at least I hope you all know that's the strategy, right? Okay, the oil pressure light, not the oil change light, okay? They're two different things. If it says oil change required, keep driving for a little while. But if the oil pressure light comes on, usually the little thing looks like a genie's lamp. If that comes on, stop the car immediately, park it, and call whoever else you need to call to come get you, okay? Uh, but you don't put tape over the light, and you don't use a Sharpie. And make a black, you know, scribble on your dashboard to cover up the light. That's not how you fix that problem. And when you relate this to emotions, you don't just cover it up, right? You you move on. You have to do something to fix it. So rightly, if the oil pressure light comes on, you stop the car immediately. You then investigate or get a trained and or experienced counselor, I mean mechanic, to help you diagnose an intern, you know, what the internal problem is. There's an internal problem that's causing that external indicator to come on. There's something going on behind that that's causing you to get the indicator. It's just letting you know that there's a problem. The problem can't be fixed uh, until you get back, or the problem can be fixed and you can get back to cruising smoothly down the road possibly including some changed maintenance habits or practices for your car, right? If you keep doing the same thing you were doing that got you in a position where your oil is too low and your pressure runs out, you probably need to change your habits, okay? Now, hopefully you guys heard a more spiritual and practical process in that analogy. When uh, sinful emotions are experienced and certainly uh, when they are expressed. Now, remember, we can feel them, but then we also express them. Well, when's the better time to be evaluating this and figuring out what the problem is? Well, it's when you're getting it within, when you are having the feelings, when you are experiencing it, not so much when you're expressing it. Uh, you want to do it before you express it. But the believer recognize, uh, needs to recognize the sinful emotion and or emotion-driven actions or words 
consider the internal source of that. What is it that what's behind that? And possibly obtain help from a mature shepherd or counselor or friend, somebody who is mature to help them think through how to renew their mind, put off the sinful thoughts, put on godly thoughts, and then get back on track to the continued sanctification and God-pleasing living. Um, so it, it occurred to me, uh, I was reminded that Tom Webb, I don't, did he use the analogy, he probably didn't in the class we just talked about, did he use the analogy of, of the river being discipleship in class when he's here? Okay, you all look at me blank stairs, so I guess not. Okay, so Tom uses this analogy, and I don't know where he, he got it from or if he made it up himself, I have no idea, but... Um, you know, normal discipleship in the church is like a river flowing. So if you're going to go up into what little river or whatever that is in Townsend, and you're going to be floating down the river on your, on your tubes, right? You're going to be tubing down the river, and the, it's the normal flow. That's normal discipleship in the church that you are, you know, sometimes you get hung up on a rock and somebody yanks you and you're off the rock and you're floating down the, the river again. And so we help one another as we go along the river. But every once in a while, Somebody gets caught up behind in a whirlpool, or they get caught up behind some rocks or some logs or something like that, and they're stuck, and they, can't get, they just can't get out. And you can't give them an easy tug, and they just come out. You have to get out of your tube, walk across the water. They have to get out of their tube. You have to walk it over, put it back in the deep wa deeper water. It's never all that deep, it doesn't seem like. But in the deeper water, get back in the tube, and then you can start back in, into the regular flow of discipleship. So the idea is... That sometimes people, you know, as far as counseling goes, it's just intense discipleship. It's a time when somebody gets hung up on something and they need help getting out of it. And you need somebody who else, who is in the flow, somebody else who's there, who can be there and help, and they can get out, and they can take time out to get you out of that jam and get you flowing again. So that's the idea here in fixing the indicator of the emotions is you might need somebody to help you out, particularly if there's a bad habit or a sinful habit of expressing a certain emotion. It might need help thinking that through, renewing your mind, and getting back into godly living. So I said renew the mind and putting off sinful thoughts. So I said change, so I said talking about changing thoughts. So why are we talking about changing thoughts? when we're talking about emotions. Well, you guys probably understand, you know, um, we need to change our thinking. It's, it's what we are feeling that's the problem. However, our thinking drives our emotions. It's what we think that lands us in the emotions in the first place. And even more than that, our desires and our expectations drive our emotions. When we have expectations and they're crossed, that's going to bring out emotions in us. So, so the track we have here is that thoughts lead to desires and expectations. So we think about things, we consider things, we start setting up these desires and these expectations in our minds. That leads to emotions, which eventually comes out and is going to be expressed in our actions, in our behavior. Now, obviously the sin isn't just the full-baked action, right? It's not the full-baked behavior. The sin can be any in any or every ingredient in there. It can be in the thinking. It can be in the expectations. It can be in our desires. 
we can have good desires. We can have good, obviously we have good thinking. We, have, we can have good expectations even. But when those things are, uh, when those things are sinful, it's going to come out eventually in sinful behavior as well. So is it possible to think good thoughts which develop into good desires and still have them turn out to be sinful expectations, emotions, and actions? Well, yeah, of course. We can have right thoughts, but when that becomes idolatry, when we are focused on that and it has to happen and we're willing to sin to make that happen, or we're going to sin if it doesn't happen, then that becomes a sinful thing. Nicholas Ellen gave an illustration. He says, if someone, and I didn't copy it exactly, but he says, if someone you don't know walks by you, random person on the street, they walk by you and they say, I hate you. And, you know, and they just keep walking. Uh, or they even stop and stand there and say, I hate you. And you're like, okay. Uh, that's probably going to seem sort of strange. And you might even consider for a short, short moment what you might have done to cause that person to say that to you, right? But likely, by the time you get home, you've shrugged it off and you've forgotten about it, and by the time you get to bed, you sleep soundly and it's no big deal, right? However, uh, if you come home, you make it home and the guy doesn't tell you, or maybe he does tell you, I hate you, and you still go home and you've already forgotten about that guy, but you get home and your spouse says, I hate you, well, that's going to be hurtful, and we will probably, you know, it's probably going to drive you to a big discussion and probably a sleepless night or two, right? So the expectation is there that our spouse is going to love us. Our expectation is that our spouse won't talk to us that way. Some random guy in the street, we don't care. So it doesn't, it doesn't pull out emotions from us. It doesn't cause us to be hurt by that. Um, so our emotions are, are driven, our emotions are drawn out by our failed, the things that fail our expectations. Now, we've already discussed several times in this class that good desires can become idolatrous. Um, they can become driving forces, idolatrous driving forces. Paul David Tripp says, and this is one of his more popular quotes, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. So we can have good desires but when we allow those to become ruling things, they become bad things. They become bad desires. They become idolatrous. So emotions reflect what we believe and what we value. He's, God has given us Holy Spirit indwelled. He's given Holy Spirit indwelled believers the ability and resources to develop sinful thoughts, desires, and expectations with God-pleasing thoughts and desires. What did I write there? I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Holy Spirit and dwell believers, the ability and resources. Oh, simple thoughts. I don't know what I wrote there. I have no idea. I have a feeling I started the sentence, walked away to get a cup of coffee, came back, and I have no idea what I wrote. That's, I'm guessing. That's what that, that makes On with the rest of it. On, one of the resources God has given believers is the body, other believers. So Galatians 6, 1, we read, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So we talked about the more mature believers helping those that need help. And they don't have to necessarily be more mature than you in the moment, 
I mean, if there's a difficulty, it's not like somebody has to be far and away above more mature than you. They just need to see the problem that you're not seeing. And they need to be able to know you need to look into the Word here and obey. You need to look into the Word here and change. And we can help one another. That's what we are to do in the body. God has given us the resource of the body to help one another in our sanctification. Also, we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 14, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. In 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, which also means or could mean undisciplined. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now, when you think about that, and I'm not going to make a big point about this, but admonish the unruly, which could mean undisciplined. So is the undisciplined person going to be more likely to have sin issues that they need to be helped with? Yes, most certainly. So that lack, when we're, when we're told to be disciplined for, in order to please God, then we need to take that seriously because we are going to be falling into sin when we lack that discipline. We don't discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're not being careful to be in God's Word and to be striving to please Him. Now, of course, the authoritative resource and is always, we have the church, but we also have the Word that God has given us. He's given us His Word to be read, to have sitting on the table here, or to you know, be reading on a regular basis. And it's, it's as, as much at hand as we make it. And I mean that by... If, you, if I walk out of this room and this Bible is sitting on this table here, that doesn't mean I am without the Scripture if I have memorized it and if I have spent time meditating on it. So as much as we make it so, we have the Word as our resource for us. When we fail to do that, we're going to have to be going back to the Word in order to apply it. On a regular, and we're the ones that are going to need the help. We're the ones that are going to need to be helped back into the flow of discipleship because we were undisciplined in learning God's Word and knowing it, to be able to apply it. Believers must evaluate their emotions according to the standard of God's Word, just like we do our thoughts, our motivations, our intentions, desires, and actions. So in thinking that our emotions, because they just sort of come out, because they just happen, we feel like they just happen a lot of times because somebody does something and we get hurt, well, it ultimately comes back to, are we in line with Scripture? Are we measuring our thoughts, our motivations, our intentions, our desires, and our actions according to God's Word? Are we regularly examining ourselves according to God's Word? Our feelings are direct results of what we think. We're commanded regarding our feelings. Colossians 3.8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, and malice, and so on. Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness be put away from you. Galatians 5 addresses enmity, strife, and jealousy. We're commanded in many places to not fear or be anxious or worry. So we are directly commanded by God's Word to not have these emotions. And when we allow these emotions to continue, it is sinful. So we are commanded not to sin, in our emotions in these ways. The Word tells us to put these things off, lay them aside, etc. Scripture identifies these emotions as sinful, and we are to get rid of them. We're to put them aside. We're to mortify the emotions, so to speak. 
We're supposed to get these because they're sinful, which should indicate to us that um, that indicates to us that they don't just happen to us because we can actually eradicate them. God says, get rid of them. So we can't say, well, they just happen. Well, they don't just happen because God's told us not to do it. So therefore, it's not something that's just happening. We are choosing to have these emotions or to stay in these emotions. But the Scripture never tells us to take emotions captive. Never tells us that it, it, it talks in, in 2 Corinthians 10, we're commanded to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In Philippians 4, we're commanded to dwell on things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely, of good repute, excellent and worthy of praise. And this list is sandwiched between the promise of the peace of God in living out uh, in supplications, in giving our supplications to Him and being thankful, and then after that, the God of peace being with us as we practice what Paul set the example for. So in the middle, sandwiched between those two things, is where we're commanded to dwell on these things, the, the, the right things, the things that are pleasing to God, true and honorable, right and pure and lovely. So we're commanded to think rightly, and we're commanded to put off emotions. So, so what I'm getting at here is that, that emotions, God doesn't command us to take those things captive. It's the thoughts behind it that drive the emotions, which are sinful when we let them play out. Emotions are driven by thoughts. Emotions are byproducts of thought patterns. They are indicators of where thinking is wrong. Other people and circumstances cannot damage our emotions. You guys may have heard damaged emotions. People can't damage our emotions. If emotions, if, if what they are is indicators, and if what they are is results of our thoughts, and it's, within, it's coming from within. The emotions come from within. They don't come from without. Somebody else, somebody else does not damage our emotions. Our emotions are coming from within us. They're not imposed upon us from the outside. Somebody doesn't say anger. <laughs> you know, I'm going to throw anger at you and it's going to stick to you. That's not how it works. It comes from within us. Jesus was very clear about that. Emotions are indicators of how we are processing how people and circumstances are affecting us. So as we are feeling these emotions, as we have these emotions rise up, we need to be mindful of these things and be considering, why is this coming out? Why am I having this emotion? How am I thinking? How am I applying the word how am I relating what's going on in my life in this circumstance as according to God's Word? And am I doing that? If I'm not doing that, then I'm sure to be sinning. Do people hurt our feelings? Well, anybody who's been listening here should be answering no by now, right? Uh, do our feelings get hurt? Yes, our feelings do get hurt. But are others causing them to be hurt? No, they're not. We have hurt feelings when the expectations we set up for ourselves are not met. So we have wrong expectations. Those expectations get stepped on. The toes of our expectations get stepped on, and we have our feelings hurt. So we go back to Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want. This is uh, Apostle Paul speaking. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, 
both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Have you guys seen that, that uh, parody of that, I guess, that says, I can do all things through a, a, script, a verse taken out of te- context or whatever? Um, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So Paul learned, it says, and I think what we need to learn or what we need to see here is that it says, Paul says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He doesn't say, I am, con- I am, I've always been, I've always been content in every circumstance. He said he's learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was. Paul was able to say that he learned to be content. His strength was in Christ alone. We look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 as well. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, or could be mistreatments, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we talked through the resources, boundaries, and the five love languages, and what was the brass tacks message of both of those books. Essentially, it was the way you feel is determined by how others treat you. That's what the, that's what the story, that's what the main point was of those books, is that essentially you have emotions and that's determined by how others treat you, which is exactly the opposite of what we just said biblically. Um, in fact, the way others treat you, this is what the books, uh, this is what the books were communicating. In the way others treat you is sometimes determinative as to whether you can be a healthy, functioning human being. So what's the answer to that? The answer to that is set up boundaries and give and hope to get back. That's, that was the answer of those books to this situation. Now, remember in those books also, there was a lot of references to emotional wellness and emotional health and things like that. Uh, these are references... Uh, to the idea that you could be emotionally, you know, when they say emotional health and they say emotional wellness, what does that imply? That implies that uh, you could be emotionally unwell and emotionally unhealthy if people aren't treating you the right way. However, that health was never referred to as being resulting of how you think in accordance with God's Word. Remember, they're both saying that they're Christian resources, but it had nothing to do with how are you thinking about God's Word. And how is that affecting you? That was not addressed at all. It was never in reference to being emotionally healthy as a servant of others in peace with God and man. So when we serve others, that Scripture, the, the message of Scripture is that we are to serve others, and there is health and peace in that. There is emotional health, if you want to say that. There is a right relationship. There is peace with God in that. So the person who thinks of emotions as happening to them is going to struggle. Of course, this speaks to people-pleasing, which we talked about in here. It speaks to our decision-making. We oftentimes make our decisions out of fear. Um, other life choices that we make. We often decide courses of action based on our feelings. The key is to evaluate our feelings biblically so that we are... We, it's not wrong to have our emotions involved in our decisions, but we need to have those biblically grounded in order to do that. We need to be aware of how our thoughts regarding people and circumstances are driving our emotions. So this is why the follow your heart mentality is not sound. 
when we let unevaluated and tempered, you know, and untempered feelings drive our decisions, we're bound to end up in error and sin and trouble because we can't let our emotions drive that. We got to let our thoughts behind the emotions drive how we are emoting, so to speak, and to let that be the guide for us. So this goes back to our lessons on the flesh. We have a remnant of the sin nature that wants to drive our decisions and actions. Our flesh influences us to please ourselves, not God, and those He has given to us to love and serve sacrificially. We don't, that's, our flesh drives us to be selfish. It drives us to want what we want. It doesn't drive us to want to serve and to glorify God in loving others sacrificially but we're not slaves of the flesh. First, Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So it doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're going to be perfect in glory. But that means that we are not slaves to the flesh anymore. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be controlled by our emotions. So um, just got a couple more minutes here. So I'm going to, I want to address... Um, I'm going to skip to the end here. I'd like to address the dangers of the therapeutic uh, or diagnosing habitual sinful thinking and the resulting emotional struggles as a sickness. So uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if that just sort of went over your head, uh, I hope this opens up some new thinking for you. Um, there are psychologists and integrationists, if you guys, integrationists are Christian counselor. People label, label themselves as Christian counselors, but they're mostly psychologists. They're, you know, they got PhDs in psychology or masters in psychology or something, and they're tacking some Bible on the top, but they're mostly going to lean towards their psychology training. That's the integrationists. So there's psychologists and integrationists, Christian counselors out there who are capable of unintentionally, unintentionally causing a lot of harm. Many, if not most of these people, I believe, they truly want to help people. So I'm not saying they are, and even the people, and even these guys that wrote the five love languages and boundaries, I don't think they're trying to hurt people. They are not trying to lead people astray. They are trying to help people. And as we said, there were some good things. There were some good things in those resources. Um, they want to help people. Um, however, in diagnosing a person as ill is not helpful as it often leads to hopelessness and more sin. And when I say ill, I mean mentally ill. So when somebody gets diagnosed as being mentally ill in some way, that's not helpful and it can be very hurtful, and I'll explain why. So diagnosing a person like this really comes out of a world that it's not biblical. It's evolutionary and atheistic because that's where they base this from. I mean, um, that's what the early psych people were. They were trying to remove God from the picture. They were attempting to remove the Bible and its influence and remove pastors as those who were doing soul care. They're trying to get them out so that we could have a, a psych, essentially have a worldview or that they could push a worldview that didn't have God and all of His standards and restrictions and expectations in the picture so they could do whatever they wanted to. So that's where it came out of. The mindset, so psychology, it actually means study of the soul. We oftentimes think psychology is study of the brain. It's study of the soul. That's what it means. The mindset for psychological methods is to satisfy the self. So we saw that. We, we, we went through those resources. That's what we come across. That's why we often hear, team, hear terms like self-actualization, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, 
It places man and not God at the center of a person's world. The evolutionary thinking defines man as a machine, a product of nature, just another mammal that has advanced thinking and abilities. So they see us, I mean, you think about an evolutionary mindset, they just see man as an advanced form of mammal. And so we have capabilities that are more than that, but if there's nothing behind that, if there's nothing intrinsic about us that's, that, is, uh, that is eternal, then there's nothing to address in that way. It's just to address how, what things are going on in the moment. And it also makes sense that everybody just wants to try and be happy. That makes sense, right, if that's all we are. So psychology as a whole, as a worldview, seeks to destroy anything, whatever, causing discomfort or unwanted feelings. So that's the idea. They want to get rid of anything that's, that's uncomfortable or anything that's unwanted feelings. The idea of considering it all joy in the midst of difficulty, like James tells us, under the hands of a sovereign God is completely foreign and undesirable in their view. They don't want, they get out of the troubles. Don't, you know, do, get out of your difficulties. And if that means you have to get away from people or even hurt other people to protect yourself, then that is sensible to do in their view. We're influenced by this psychologized world all the time. And I think as we go forward from here, we're going to get into some communication. We're going to talk about some communication. And part of that's going to be talking about biblical terms for worldly things we hear all the time. And you guys know, we see this in the media all the time. Um, things are explained through the lens of psychology and sickness and victim mentality. So I might read this to go faster. So when a person, believer or unbeliever, goes to the internet or a psychologist or integrationist counselor or a book like Boundaries, The Five Love Languages, or a podcast that sounds good to find answers for whatever feelings are troubling them, this person will often come away from that with some kind of diagnosis or self-diagnosis, labeling that defines them with some sickness that is incurable, but with which that person might be able to cope if they have medicine or technique or whatever. So diagnoses are never, you have this difficulty going on and we're going to help you through it because there's no authoritative standard to help them through that difficulty. And so there's nothing to work with. So if you have this thing, then you are this thing, essentially, and you are going to stay that thing. The problem with diagnosis like this, self or otherwise, is that hope is removed. This person believes they are sick and there's nothing to be done but live with it the best they can. So you hear the person says, I'm, I struggle with depression or I am depressed or I have OCD or my child has ADHD or whatever it is, that is a label. Of course, that means everyone around this person also must live with this sick person as best they can, right? We're supposed to work around it to help them because they're sick. Sam Stevens, in one of, and I'll post all these links, but in one of these, he, he boils it down to three themes that are affected by this type of thinking. Identity, responsibility, and purpose. Identity, the person identifies with the sickness. He says, I am, and you guys have heard this, I am depressed. What kind of statement is that? I mean, he's not saying I am depressed in the moment. He's saying, I am depressed. It's what I am. I, I am OCD. I am anxious. I or he or she is ADHD. If you guys have heard that language, right? I am this, he is that. Not they struggle with this or it's a difficulty with they, they're having. In this person's mind, they are now labeled and identified as whatever this sickness is. People are often diagnosed within minutes of discussing their problems and feelings. 
So within minutes of hearing what their difficulty is, label, you're depressed, you're OCD, whatever. This is not a verifiable scientific process, if you guys didn't realize that. It, it's not, there isn't a blood test to get these conclusions. A person's blood work after a physical doesn't come back and they say, well, your cholesterol is doing better because you're getting, you know, you're getting salads, you're eating the salads and getting exercise, and that's coming down, but you're OCD. I mean, that's not how that works. It's not, it's not coming out this way. Of course, the believer has so much wrapped up in his identity in Christ, is indwelled with so much enabling by the Holy Spirit, and has the God who created, adopted, sustains, and provides for him. A diagnosis is not the overarching identity for a believer. It can never be. His overarching identity is in Christ. A diagnosis doesn't change a believer's identity in Christ, nor his relationship with the God who is sovereign over all. So the second theme is responsibility. These diagnoses also affect a person's sense of responsibility. And you guys can see how this is. If somebody identifies themselves as being depressed or being OCD or whatever it is, much of psychology encourages a victim mentality because it blames a person's behavior on his disorder, which is often blamed on his biology or his circumstances or how he was treated by others, most often their parents, right? And how, whatever happened in their childhood. In other words, he acts the way he does because other factors have determined that he does. Of course, Scripture gives no allowance for this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we have no temptation which is overtaken. We do not have to sin at any point. We're responsible and accountable for sin. If you've been in church, you heard this already in big words, right? Um, I mean, if you're going to church, you're going to hear it again. Uh, we are accountable for our sin. We can't blame our sin on our wife or a serpent where it all started. We can't blame it on something else. It started in the beginning. Barely past the first sin, and there's already blame going on, right? Well, that's just carried on through. The diagnosis leaves a person with just himself to cope with what his problem, uh, cope with his problem, to try and get along and deal with it. So what happens to the person who doesn't feel he's up to the challenge? So he's gotten himself into this, or he's come to this position, and he hasn't been able to overcome this, or he hasn't lived above this sickness that he has already. So he's in this position where he's been told he has this sickness and that he can cope with it on his own, that he needs, that in his own power, he can cope with this, right? What's going to happen with that person when they know they haven't coped with it already, and this is how they got him in that spot? They're going to become hopeless. They're going to lose hope. And that exacerbates the problem because they give it into it and continue with the behavior. Of course, if they receive special treatment and or sympathy for their sickness or their problem, then what? That encourages them to do it more and to live out that diagnosis. And lastly, a person's purpose is misdirected. As we mentioned last week, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are called to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what we are to do. But does the diagnosed person focus on glorifying God in his sickness? The diagnosis is inherently self-focused, not others-focused. We please and glorify God as we serve and love others sacrificially. So the person who is sick is not going to inherently do that. That's not going to be what they're driven to do. So this is a little different way of looking at these problems, and I hope it's been helpful. But you know, God has provided all that we need in His Word as we look at these things, and as you consider people saying these things, you know, 
they really they really need our sympathy. They, they, and, and when you think about somebody who comes in, has labeled themselves this way, and they're hopeless, and, but they have this thing that they really believe they are. They, it's not that they're struggling with it. They are this thing. To get them out of that mindset is very difficult because that's what they identify with, and th- that's how they see themselves. So 2 Timothy, just last thing I remind you, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God, which means God breathed. God directly gave us His Word. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So let's pray. Lord, thank You again for this morning and this time that we can consider how Your Word applies to our emotions, how we can... um, consider and, and uh, look at our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors through the lens of your word. And I pray that you would help us mindful to do that, that we would see the emotions as the indicators that they are, and that we'd be, um, when we recognize the emotions, that we would be evaluating how it is that we are applying the thoughts that we've gained from uh, being in your word. And if we haven't been in your word, that we would be mindful to be disciplined to do so, and that we would seek to please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.